Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast. It digs in a true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, his brother was snatched on the way to the store. Five decades later, he struggles to come to terms with it. We'll discuss the podcast, Alligator Candy. Plus, have right-wing extremists infiltrated the German army? We'll review the new New York Times investigative podcast, Day X. Joining me to get those things done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, and birthday boy, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Happy birthday. Do I get a spanking? I'm sorry I didn't get you or a, a cake. pinch to grow an inch? I didn't get you a cake. I'm very sorry. I would have actually really liked a cake. I, that's how I felt when you didn't get me a cake, but then I forgot I felt that way, so I also didn't get you a cake. I'm sorry. I'll get you a cake tomorrow. Okay. Also with us is author, private fine, invest- I'll take a cake tomorrow. It's fine. You like it just the same. Are you going to say you're not going to want a cake tomorrow? Oh, hell no. I'll take a cake any day <laughs> of the week. Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, and resident cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura Bricker. Hello, Rebecca. I am on a cat case as we speak. Oh. Cannot wait to hear about all that. All right, all right. Mm-hmm. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast about UFOs, and the Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. So, Kevin, how's your birthday going? Do you feel like 51? Oh, Yeah. I mean, even though I'm only 47. Yeah. No, I'm actually 51. I will say, I listen to- I just keep thinking about somebody who's just tuning into this podcast for the first time. They're like, yeah, Laura's on some cat detective case and- Toby's all about UFOs, and I just want birthday cake. And I'm like, out. Why? <laughs> I'm out. Like, why should we take these people seriously? I know, I know. But I can I just give one plug for you, Kevin, on your birthday? Yeah. Could I stop you? I guess I couldn't. <laughs> so uh, famous comedian Janet Varney and friend of the podcast had you on her outstanding podcast, The JV Club with Janet Varney. Mm-hmm. I just listened to your episode, which she put out on your birthday, and she acknowledged was on your birthday. I just listened to it before we started taping this, and it is so charming. Thank you. you. Is you, it better than your episode oh my God, that you it's did with her a year ago? a million times better than my episode. You tell all of your greatest hits high school stories. Mm-hmm. I'm only disappointed that you didn't tell the <laughs> fight story. That's the only story you didn't Could tell. Could you not mention his name? Okay. I'm only disappointed <laughs> that you didn't tell the poop fight story. <laughs> I mean, the kid I got into a fight with? Yeah, I didn't yeah, think that maybe, yeah. maybe that wasn't one of my better moments. Yeah, yeah. 
So anyway, if anyone wants to check out Kevin and hear his deepest, darkest secrets, including the uh, piano tie, the skinny piano <laughs> tie he wore all through high school. Yeah. And his favorite Billy Joel songs, um, and how I was his best wingman ever at his 10th high school reunion, or 20th high school reunion, (laughs) I would really recommend checking out Janet Varney's JV Club podcast. It is charming. Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. And all sorts of like famous people go on that. And me. And you. It's so weird. Janet actually listens to our stupid show. Janet really punched down. (laughs) She punched way down, (laughs) bringing me on. She actually said... um, that she likes to like listen to our reviews even if she hasn't watched or listened to the thing because she wants to watch the thing through the lens of how Toby feels about it. Yeah. Yeah, she said that. Wow. Right on. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of reviews, should we just get into our first one? How about it? Let's get it done. Leading off. His bike wasn't in the garage. Panic when you don't see a kid. He'd left for the 7-Eleven around noon. Three and a half hours later, he still wasn't back. In 1973, when journalist David Kushner was four years old, his older brother John biked off to a convenience store to buy him his favorite gum. When John didn't return, the community mobilized to find the lost boy. I thought he would come back or they would find him or something. He was at a friend's and nobody knew. I I thought something like that was going to happen. Who the hell goes missing? The tragic end of the search altered life in Kushner's family. Five decades later, the writer would struggle to come to terms with the loss and the thought that his request for candy led to a tragedy. It's an anger and a disgust. It's crushing. It's a sinking, sickening, woozy feeling. Like the weight of the world we don't want to imagine oozes into this one. Heavy, molten, and smoldering. In the UCP audio podcast, Alligator Candy, Kushner interviews family, police, reporters, and witnesses who were there, recounting the days of panic and the lives that were forever changed. Based on his memoir of the same name, Kushner uses a journalist's lens to offer a portrait of grief and renewal often skipped over by most true crime stories. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Alligator Candy. So if you want to remain totally spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Kevin, this podcast is hella sad. Yeah. Listening to a podcast like this, it made me realize how infrequently we hear about the interstices of Mm -hmm. a story like this, of a crime like this, like a kid goes missing. We very often hear about like what happened and the trial, but we never hear about a family sitting in their house with people, like just not knowing what happened and all the feelings and then just like leaving it there to explore. What did you think of that frame for this? Well, you're right. I think a lot of true crime podcasts today would be about Wit and Tillman and it would be a lot of oohs and ahs about the methods and every one of those true crime podcasts has a victim of some kind, but they are usually just a side dressing, right? There's not really a lot of thoughtful investigation into how it affects their lives. Hmm. Certainly not anything expansive. And, you know, this is one uh, that does that. There are also a lot of memoirs out there about people's loss. And, you know, a lot of times you hate to say it like this, but in the publishing world, it has to be something 
rather extraordinary because everybody goes, suffers some kind of loss and it's very interesting to them, but it may not be interesting to other people. So when you have someone like David Kushner who can really frame the story and it really elevates it and it really allows us to transition away from the crime hmm. and into the aftermath, which, you know, last years and years and years. Now, Kushner tells the story, Laura, through the lens of his memory of childhood, right? He sets up the whole story with his childhood home outside of Tampa, talks about his parents, and then he talks about his memories of his family and his final memory of his brother, which is his brother biking off to 7-Eleven to buy him candy. I want to go too, but I can't, he tells me. I'm too young. Then there's something you better get me, I tell him. Snappy gator gum. He promises he'll get it. Then he turns to the woods and pedals away. This is very much a study in childhood memory, right? Yeah, I think that was one of the things as he was telling the story of what he remembered about what happened. And then later when he actually finds out more details and, you know, it definitely fleshed out the story. You know, I'm thinking about things that I remember from childhood and I don't remember, you know, I think I remember them and then I might see a relative and say, so what's the story with this? And it's something totally different. And it reminded me a lot of one of my neighbors growing up. And uh, this would be the older sister of the girl that I broke into the ice cream house with. Their father was like the original organic farmer. And Melissa Coleman, the older sister, wrote this book about how, and I never knew this all growing up and they were like my best friends next door, had a third sister that died, that drowned when they lived in Maine, when they were doing like the back to the land, like super organic farming time period of their life. And so she, similar to how David goes back and reexamines these events and how they shaped his life and also how they continued to affect him as an adult. I mean, she did the same thing as like, she always thought that her sister drowned because of her. And when she had her own children, it all came to a head. So I was thinking a lot about that. And I was thinking like, gosh, it is interesting to, if you have the opportunity to find people that are more reliable witnesses to the time period than your own like four-year-old memory, kind of enlightening, but it also can be, you know, kind of therapeutic to go back and go through those sort of memories over again. Toby, when I started listening to this podcast, not knowing anything about Kushner's memoir, I thought this was going to be like, I'm investigating what happened to my brother. I thought this was going to be much more traditional, true crime stuff. It ends up not being that at all. What do you think of the setup of the show? Well, it starts off, I think, a little bit in the more uh, normal true crime genre where it sort of recounts what happened. Uh, and it's got a little bit more of a first person thing, obviously, because he was there and it's his brother and stuff. So it does, you know, the setup... It's really good, but it's it's more traditional. And then it sort of veers off into the grief part of it after that. I don't know. This is a tough listen for me. It's not the kind of thing I would normally seek out is hours and hours of, of people being sad and grieving. But, you know, I, I think for someone like me, it kind of pulls you into the story at the beginning with something more traditional. And then you're like invested enough in the story that when the rest of it comes, that you're already sort of one foot in the door. Toby, this really is in many ways an exploration of grief. I mean, we hear really every member of Kushner's family has a different story. Like they all have a different sort of perception of the event of his brother, you know, disappearing and then being found murdered. But then they also have like a path that each of them took 
out of it. And they're all in it. His brother's in it. Both of his, you know, we hear his father who, you know, passed away. But he's, you know, we hear him in the podcast. We hear his mother. But isn't that interesting, though, just to think about a family like We've criticized, I think, similar things like this, um, maybe not done as well. We've called them things like, you know, wallowing in grief or grief porn. This doesn't feel like that. It feels like a journey through it, if that makes sense. What do you think? Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things to me was how they each of the family members sort of found their own way of, I don't know, therapy or, or dealing with their grief or whatever, so that the dad, you know, strikes up a correspondence with Ellie Wiesel. And I, I guess a, eventually a friendship. And the mom starts teaching Lamaze classes before Lamaze is a big thing. Like she, after the death, what she really wants to be around is like the creation of new life. And then later on, you know, this is obviously decades and decades later, but the brother Andy, like, is, is written at least one song about his brother. And then uh, David himself, obviously, you know, he wrote a book, he did a podcast, and he kind of went into a life of writing. Mm. Um, and it seems as though this was always kind of present for him to the point where he finally, you know, he's like, I finally, I'm going to address this thing that's there. And his dad was like, this is, this is going to be a heavy, heavy deal, but you but you'll probably gain from it. Yeah. Now, Kevin, every story we've heard or watched about kids in the eighties or seventies, like it always sort of comes back to the idea that it was a different time. Like parents yeah. just let their kids go wilding. I mean, that was how I grew up. That was how you grew up. Be home by dark. I don't care what you're doing in between that. But in this podcast, it's contextually important to understand that, and I think that Kushner. I don't know, does a pretty good job making it more important than it has been in other stories. What do you think of this idea of like the contrasting styles of parenting then versus parenting now and how it's presented here? Well, yes and no. I mean, it, the it was a different time trope is really overused. And, you know, without getting too much into it, I don't think he does that here. I mean, it's it's kind of self-evident and does bring up sort of later on that, you know, the idea of just a bunch of kids or one kid could just get on a bike and head off downtown and come back, you know, hours later. It's almost when, you know, in the early going when they're looking for John and it's four o'clock and he hasn't been back yet. I was kind of thinking, oh, geez, really? Just four o'clock? Based on my recollection of pop culture in the 70s, you just like maybe come home on Thursday or something like that if you're a little kid. What about you? Did you ride your bike around and just like come home whenever? Because I did. Well, if you were in an area where you could ride a bike. uh, When I was young, I was not. But yeah, I mean, you just kind of, obviously there was a point where, you know, if you didn't come home at some point, someone would start to worry about you. But the dangers of the world really didn't change, right? It's our perception as adults that has. And there's some talk about helicopter parenting. And yeah, at some point, it just got to be where Americans didn't think kids should be out without supervision because they might get kidnapped or they might skin their knee. And he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it because I don't think he needs to. He's basically set up this whole you know situation where, yeah, he, you know, biked off. And if that happened in 2020, the parents would be shamed on Instagram for allowing that to happen. But it was, as it has been said, a different time. Lara, one of the things that was interesting to me is that David, he was only four years old when his brother uh, was murdered. But he talks about how his parents, like, let him do all the same stuff. His brother was allowed to do. They wanted him to experience the same kind of life that his siblings had and that his brother didn't get to have. Were you surprised to hear that? 
Yeah, I, I don't think I, if I was a parent in that position, I would have been able to do that. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, like we were talking about before, like when David is an adult and has children, this all comes to a head for him. And so for those parents to be able to put their fear aside and allow David to go out and do all those things, I would not have been able to do it. So I was definitely surprised by that fact. Yeah. I actually found myself really loving the parents. Laura, you're very similar. Like if we catalog the things that we allow our kids to do, maybe some other parents might be shocked. (laughs) But like I, I definitely feel like I really think it's important for you sometimes to not know where your kids are. I know it sounds like maybe that doesn't sound like it lands well, but I do think it's actually important for kids to have agency, for kids to have experiences, for kids to call you at six and say, hey, I'm here. Can I sleep over? Rather than, I mean, it just feels to me like that's how you get to learn to be. And I I think about that all the time. Do you find yourself thinking about that as a parent? Yeah, absolutely. And this this kind of we had a good example of this over the week. We've been on this like all-American family road trip and uh, the first stop was Ithaca, New York. And you know, our son will he's going to be 15 pretty much by the time this podcast comes out next week. He you know, he tolerates this for a while. His cousin gave him a skateboard to use. He found out where the local skate park was and he just took off to the skate park. And we're like, "Have fun, be safe, don't do anything stupid." And I mean, it's a pretty safe area. But then we're at dinner and some of the other adults are like, well, you just let Will go to the skate park? And I'm like, yeah, he's fine. They're like, do you want us to go get him? I'm like, no. And then it started raining and they're like, oh, God, do you want to? And I said, no, he needs to learn. But I also think it's part of like planning ahead and you are in a safe area for the most part. Um, so it all ended well, but there was some moments there where I was kind of getting a little bit of side eye about it. So I totally relate to that. It's like when we were in London, Kevin, and we had, like no idea where Teddy is. We're like Piccadilly. We're like... And we're like, come join us. Just a foreign country. He figured it out. He figured it out. There were pictures in the in the he had a phone. underground. Yes. <laughs> um, Toby, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was uh, Kushner's mom's desire to have the death penalty applied in this case uh, with Johnny Witt, who was the perpetrator who received the death penalty. She talked about a justification for the death penalty that I have never heard before as somebody who's anti-death penalty. Like, I kind of got it. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I thought the the first thing is that it seems surprising that that she was just really wanted the death penalty because the rest of the things you hear about the family make them seem as though they wouldn't be like death penalty it's proponents. It's like hippies, basically, right? Yeah, so it's like, huh, like, I wonder what this is all about. But her, you know, her thing is... She doesn't want there to be a living memory of John's last moments. In her mind, which I guess is true, that that if his murderers are executed, then that memory will go with them. He has that experience. He has that memory. That that's wow. why that's about the death sentence. It's not an eye for an eye. I've never heard anybody talk about it that way. I certainly haven't thought about it that way, but it it was interesting. I mean, it did make me stop and think about it for a little bit. Don't you think uh, when we hear about what actually happened with the crime, I mean, to me, it was more understandable. I mean, I can't put myself in her shoes. And I just, you know, just to sort of touch on this is a very difficult thing to talk about. But Toby, I found myself very relieved that John died in the trunk of the car and not in the way that these men intended him to die. It was incredibly brutal. 
Right. That was one of the interesting choices I think they made is because you don't hear about that until about halfway through, right? Right. Or even past the halfway point. So you know he's been killed. You don't know exactly how. And then you hear, before you even hear exactly what happened, you hear that, I think David, maybe Andy, uh, hears rumors at school about what happened to him. And so you even get that piece first. And I think it's a pretty smart little piece of storytelling because it does, it makes you pause and you're like, huh, what's going on here? Is this just crazy rumors and kids just talking or, or what's behind it? And then you do find out what's behind it. And it's about as bad as you can imagine, except for the fact that he was sort of mercifully dead beforehand. Mm-hmm. Kevin, there's a whole passage here about um, David's recollection. His recollection very clearly is his brother mowed the lawn and earned some money from his parents. His brother was hopping on his bike to go to a 7-Eleven. And David said to John, uh, because he was too young to go, please get me this snappy gator gum candy. Mm -hmm. In his mind, that is the last time he saw his brother. And he has always carried that with him, that maybe if I hadn't wanted this candy so bad, my brother wouldn't have gone. His father, he has a conversation with later, and his father says, no, you're wrong. You were inside the house. That is not what happened. Of course, later we find out it is what happened. What do you think of that entire sort of section of the podcast and what that means? I thought it was interesting because it it does have to do with sort of our memories of traumatic things. But I couldn't tell, and David doesn't really venture a guess at this, but whether dad said that as a mechanism to protect him, like, no, 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 it's not your fault, it's not your fault, or whether that is also his inaccurate remembrance of the day, you know, that he actually believed, no, 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 I'm the one who sent him off to the the store, and so that's my thing to, uh, you know, my cross to bear. The final memory wasn't real. When John left, he said, I'd been playing inside the house. The last person to see John alive was my dad. But either way, it's an interesting look at memory and sort of, you know, this idea. I think both of them felt guilty for different things, which really have nothing to do with the fact that he was murdered. But we we tend to think of them that way. Mm. We tend to think about all the little things about big tragedies that haunt us. And you're right. I mean, if you thought hard enough about it, it'd be, well, you know, if if I didn't get in the car at that moment, you know, I would have missed the other car. And, and if I'd stop for a newspaper or, you know, taken a different route or whatever, it's like sliding doors. That movie. Like one little thing, maybe something else doesn't happen. And, you know, those are the kind of things that drive you mad. I don't think that he can accurately remember now something that happened when he was four. No, I agree. Right. I, I just don't, I don't think that's... That's one of the possibilities. I I completely think that that could be the case, that he heard the snappy gator gum detail elsewhere and and that became part of his memory. It's probably something in between, very likely. It's something in between his and the dad's recollection. Well, I don't think if you were at age 12 and you asked him to think back to when he was four, but I think that at age four, you know, in that moment, it's traumatic that it may be burned into his memory. Well, he told the police, yeah. too, when he was four, so... Right, yeah, right. I agree. I mean, whether or not what he is recalling, you know, at the time, what is getting burned into his four-year-old brain is accurate or not, I think that's the kind of thing that he would take forward. And, and you know, details and stuff would would uh, be hard. But I know I, 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 I'm 
probably, Toby, you probably did the thing I did, which was try to think of something from when I was four years old. And could I actually remember any of it? You but know? he told the police when he was four that same story. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think what surpasses his memory is his hearing this story again and again about mm-hmm. himself. And then it becomes, I mean, that's just the, kind of the way it works. Yeah, it's the way memory works. That it comes to seem like a memory, even though... It's really just something you've heard. Yeah. My memory works. Although that detail about the gum was his that he didn't tell anybody. But the the memory, the way the memory works is you actually remember the last time you thought about it. You're yeah. not actually remembering the event. That's just the, that's like scientifically the way that it works. Laura, a quick question for you. There's a local reporter in this podcast who's mm-hmm. spending a lot of time in the family's kitchen when John is missing. Uh, and then when they find John's body, he goes to interview the family. You know, he's not allowed in. But the parents have so much grace that they invite him in to John's funeral. What did mm-hmm. you think about that as a local reporter yourself? Yeah, well, that's that's a tough one because I've been in similar situations. And, you know, as a local reporter, I think it's it's a little different because you're going to see these people in the grocery store. You're going to see these people downtown. And I said, Dr. Kushner, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And then he says to me, we would like you to join us inside. Well, uh, I can't, I got to tell you, David, I've been doing this for 47 years. And I am still blown away by that gesture. One of the examples that I always use when I think of a case like this where the local reporter has been invited in um, are, you know, Tammy Belanger, a case in Exeter, a girl who disappeared back in 1984, never found. And... I remember talking, like over the years, I would do the anniversary stories. And there's a, you know, now he's since moved on. Uh, Steve Stevens, um, cousin to one of your favorite co workers' wives, Jen Stevens. Yep. And Steve Stevens remembers, and he's talked to me about, it, like, he was the only one allowed in the Belanger home when they were looking for Tammy, when they were looking for her. And he still remembers the same thing, like you were saying, like, the grace of this family to allow him in. And to this day, he's the only reporter that ever interviewed the family. So, you know, that's one of those cases where being the local person has a little bit of a different level of acceptance and also gives you a little bit more of an in because I think you are a little more sensitive. And and I think that's how I have, I like, I remember standing on a doorstep, you know, not the same, but like on 9-11 when uh, one of the dispatchers I know, um, his sister was in one of the planes that went down. And it's the same thing. Like the Boston TV people might not be invited in, but the local person who they know is invited in. And that gives you you know, access, but you also have a, a certain responsibility to handle their story with care when they give you that access. Right. Now, Kevin, we hear about these two perpetrators, uh, Witt and Tillman, mm-hmm. and the monstrosity of their crime and the fact that they tried to do it more than once. They probably tried to do it multiple times. They're basically out hunting for a kid. Um, yeah, we actually hear from a girl who they had approached earlier. And got away. Yeah. yeah. Um, so their lore for kids, they were standing there with their bows and arrows, was, hey, we're going to go kill some animals. Do you want to come see? And I just found to myself like, who would think that a kid would be lured by that? What did you think about well, that? Well, I think that they thought that because they probably thought that the cruelty would be enjoyable because perhaps when they were children, that's what they were doing to animals. Hmm. I mean, certainly, I, you know, if at least one of them has this amount of depravity in them that it certainly manifested when they were young. And so, yeah, did they probably pull wings from flies and things like that? I would imagine that they would. And so 
Well, it seems creepy and you know alarming to say, come on, little child, I got this bow and arrow, and let's go kill something. Doesn't that sound like fun? To them, in their mind, it seems like, yeah, this is a perfectly acceptable lure. It's like saying, come on, I have candy, because that's because they're not thinking like that child. They're right. thinking like themselves as a kid. Right, right. Were you surprised that Donna was the one who came forward and, and turned them in? The Oh, the wife yeah. of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he that was a really great passage, yeah. The tape was incredible, was it not? And then he said, you know that little boy that's missing? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know how it feels to sit at work and hear the guys talking about, I wonder where he's at, or what's happened to him? And he says, I'm the one that done it. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the new podcast, Alligator Candy, from UPC Audio? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? So I'm going to give this podcast a thumbs up, and then I'm going to say it's it's kind of a subjective thing because it's definitely pretty heavy material. And like Toby had said earlier, it's not something that I would seek out of my own because it's 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 pretty sad, to put it mildly. I mean, you're basically you know, viewing a tragedy through the lens of the family who's been left in the aftermath after their son has been brutally murdered. So if you want an analysis of how a crime impacts a family done in a very thoughtful way, you might want to listen to this. I, For me personally, uh, a couple things, you know, the order, I wish that there was a little more upfront in terms of why he was telling this story now with the impact. And that came in like later episodes, but that's just like a small thing. And, you know, I feel like, um, you know, some of it, there was a bit of a disconnect between the delivery style and the emotional attachment to the crime, because I'm sure that, you know, when you're doing a podcast, they're kind of coaching you on how to talk and how to speak when you're narrating. And I felt like there was obviously more of an emotional impact to this guy that I didn't sense as much because his narration was just so steady. But I mean, I, you know, I, it's not for everyone. It's, it's, it's heavy, but it was well done. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for alligator candy? Yeah, well, first of all, I like I never like noticed like the foley sound and stuff. There's some of like the weirdest foley for the mood of this general podcast. It just it was so strange. Um, but that being said, you know, I give it a thumbs up. I mean, I, it, it's really like I would not listen to this again, and I wouldn't necessarily. I'm not necessarily saying to people go listen to it. Uh, you have to be wanting to listen to a few hours of people dealing with like just intense grief and how they go through it. But it's really well done. The writing's excellent. They make some choices that I, I thought were sort of inspired in the way that the story gets told. And, and we talked about one of them about how they, they leave the details of the crime until quite late in the story. So it's just, I, it's it's really well done. It's just the subject matter, you know, isn't going to be for everybody, but it's it's a it's an excellent piece of work. So a thumbs up, Kevin Flynn. I'm a thumbs up. Um, I would not say to someone recommend it because hey, you got to listen to Alligator Candy because it's a great crime story. I would sort of say this is a really well put together podcast. It's very thoughtful. It's about a tough subject that we don't talk about in the U.S., which is about grief. And, you know, like some of those Canadian podcasts that we're always praising that use true crime as a wrapper for a deeper issue, you know, this shares some of that. We're talking about, uh, you know, an old crime to use that as a way to look at a family story. 
you know, it's not maudlin, and it's more thought-provoking than tear-jerking, but you got to admire David Kushner for putting this together and for telling a coherent story about a, about a senseless crime. Uh, I agree with Toby. I'm actually going to give this podcast a very big thumbs up. Um, for everyone out there who listens to true crime podcasts, whoever complains that something is not victim focused and victim centric, this podcast is how to do it. This is not a grief porn. Let's like like parse over the crime and like do a thing where we talk about the victim ad nauseum for two episodes just so we can say we did it. This is a true victim-centric true crime podcast because the victims of this crime are not just the child who was murdered. The victims are his entire family and their entire family ecosystem, how they engage with each other, what happened to them afterwards, what they chose to do with it afterwards. It's real stuff. I think it's truly, truly excellent. I agree with Toby that some of the sound effects choices were not necessary. However, there were some other things that I did not like at the beginning that I grew to like later because I realized they were intentional. I was going to say something about the twangy guitar music and how much oh I didn't love it. But then <laughs> when you realize that twangy guitar music you're hearing the entire time is, is there for a reason, like I'm like, oh, that was a very good choice. And there are so many things like that in this podcast that just feel different and fresh and to take somebody who wrote something in print and making it into a compelling audio story that's a hard trick without them just reading their story we've heard podcasts where someone i wrote a book and now i'm going to tell you about the thing that's in my book reviewed something like that Mm -hmm. a couple months ago this is not that i don't know i really liked alligator candy i actually think people should listen to it it's not just sad it's also super interesting so big thumbs up for me for this podcast alligator candy I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, so Kevin, here we are in the business section. Business section. Uh, Can I please promote our after show today? 
Absolutely. We have a very special guest on our Patreon after show today for all of our Patreon members. Uh, you won't want to miss it. Our former line producer, Henry Lavoy, is going to be joining us to school us on German politics and why he made us listen to the podcast we're about to review. So I'm really excited to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, what else is on our Patreon right now? Well, I just want to thank everybody that spent last week testing out our Patreon for the free Patreon Listen Preview or Preview Listen with whatever I called it. I forget. It was you could just go to Patreon. It was like HBO when they give it to you for free. HBO free for a week, so you got to listen to a lot of the stuff that everybody's been talking about. That includes the CWO After Show, plus a new episode of Mary with Podcast. A lot of great stories, including Holly, whose friend is an emotional vampire. Oh, that's a good episode of Mary with Podcast. By the way, Holly, your friend is an emotional vampire. I hate to break it to you. We have a new episode of uh, Leave it to Bricker. It's about the Irish cat. And then also this week we have a new deep dive book club that's about to get recorded. Uh, It's called The Golden Thread is the book that Toby is reviewing. And I'm bringing it up now because you know that if you took part in that free weekend, if you hadn't known before, if you support us at the CWO Nation sponsor level, you can actually watch Toby and his panel record that podcast and you even can jump on the screen or type in a question to ask and really be part of the book club toby tell us about who's going to be reviewing the golden thread with you we have a actually a new guest for the deep dive chris joiner who who has a uh, book coming out soon and uh is a lucky guy because he uh, actually gets, he gets to, to sit work. next to Bill Rankin, right? Exactly. Yes. Oh, yes. Wow. So, uh, so I'm psyched to have him on. And then um, uh, one of my fa- favorites, Maggie Rar, who uh, did the what, what what happened to Holly Bartlett podcast uh, several years ago. Uh, so it's going to be the two of them. And the book is actually super interesting. It's about the death of uh, Dag Hammarskjöld who was the Secretary General of the UN and uh, died in a plane crash in um, basically right near Congo in Africa and uh-huh. under mysterious circumstances. And it's just, it's a super interesting book on a bunch of levels. So that's the deal. And it's happening tonight, the night that this drops. Monday night. At 8 June, o'clock. What's the date going to be? 28th. June 28th. 28th. All right. Yeah. So for those of you listening to this podcast after June 28th, you've missed it, but you should just join our Patreon anyway. <laughs> Do you think Chris goes back to work and then... Swaggers in. Yeah. But then Bill's like, hi, Chris. <laughs> Did you talk to Toby about that book? <laughs> Did you like it? Oh, no. Toby's so great. He reads lots of books. <laughs> I read a fuck ton of books. Bill. Love you, Bill. I miss your dulcet Mr. Rogers tones. Kevin, yeah, uh, what else do we want to talk about in the business section in this style of Bill Rankin? Yeah, we have a new thing. Hey, have you checked out the Crime Riders on website? <laughs> We've been telling you to go there to sign up for our weekly newsletter. We have a new feature on the website. We have a list of all of our reviews. <gasps> um, on, on the Apple Podcast app? No, 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 no. On a web page, you can go through. We have a sheet there that's been maintained by one of our listeners. <gasps> She's gone back and listened to all the back episodes and marked down whether we were a thumbs up or thumbs down, each of our votes. It's a database. Oh, my god. It's gosh. a database. And so she's going to continue to update that. So if you're thinking back, oh, okay, you did loop in season one. What did you guys think about, you know, the first season? You can scroll through and 
find that. Wow. Or have we tallied those up to see who is actually the most negative person? Well, on this I podcast? think I think that was the thing we were going to try to do. Yes, let's figure wow. that out. Yeah, yeah. there's a. I don't know how to figure. We said what's a tepid thumbs up, which mm. is such a bullshit Classic. way. Of, it's pretty. Fun. Stop it. <laughs> it's weak tea. It's fine. Hey, can we talk about one more thing in the after show today? Yeah. We talk about the debacle around our Wikipedia page that happened this week. We got Absolutely. It. We got to unpack that. With yeah. Henry on the line, it'll be amazing. I right. thought it was a triumph. It wasn't it, a debacle. It was initially a debacle. The, the, the troops triumph. rallied. Yeah. Crime writers on Nation, do not fuck with them. <laughs> so, Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Christina Kilgore and L. Goodrich. Bless you. And thus ends the business section. The business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out. Is that cool? Do it. Moving on. He walks into a single-person bathroom. (gasps) I think this is it. And opens a small door on the back wall to access some pipes. And inside... That's where they found the gun. There's an old black pistol. The discovery of a handgun at the Vienna airport bathroom led authorities to a German soldier posing as a Syrian refugee. The incident raised the specter of a domestic terrorism plot and the possibility right-wing extremists had infiltrated the nation's military and police forces. He says he was held up because he spent the last four hours questioning one of his men about a party where half a dozen KSK soldiers were accused of flashing Hitler salutes. For me, it's no eins fact. This is part of a problem he openly acknowledges. Though the nation has worked hard to distance itself from its Nazi past, German fascists have quietly been preparing for day X, when society will collapse and they will take over. Meanwhile, journalists question whether that military officer, known as Franco A., was acting alone or whether he was part of a dangerous shadow army. Don't talk about my views, please. The thoughts that I once had that I might have in the future that I have now, mm-hmm. are not even necessarily point of views. Mm-hmm. It's just all work in progress and everything evolves. In the podcast Day X from the New York Times, investigative reporter Katrin Benholt looks at the rise of German extremists, the political and anti-racism figures they were targeting, and their crimes hidden in plain sight. As in the podcast Bundyville and Two Minutes Past Nine, Bentholt shows that no matter the country, the greatest threats sometimes come from within. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Day X, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Toby Ball, you like probably follow global politics the most of those of us on the panel, besides my son, who will be joining he reads us in the books. after show. <laughs> there really is a friction in Eastern Germany that's kind of a holdover from Cold War times. Do you think that generally listeners understand the complication of this politics? Like, what do you think make of this whole background and how it's presented in the podcast? Yeah. So first of all, before I even get started, I made a terrible, terrible mistake, which is I listened to this for pleasure because I didn't think we were going to review it. So I was just kind of listening to it without like making mental notes all along the way. So so, uh, I listened to like the last three episodes, like in Crime Writers on mode, but the first couple I was sort of in happily enjoying what I was listening to mode. That's Crime Writers on mode, Toby. If you're enjoying something, listening to it on purpose. It's, it's. Hi, Toby. Do you like listening to podcasts about Nazis for pleasure? I think what Toby's saying is he didn't take notes on the first episode. I didn't take notes. But that's okay. Mental or other. Otherwise, anyway, um, 
Yeah. So I'm not super informed about all this other than, you know, that after reunification, you know, the East has been sort of economically behind the West. And as often happens in these places where, you know, that are, that are sort of behind, you know, economically or socially or whatever, it's that's where it's it's an easy breeding ground for extremism of one sort or the other. And so in the East, there's there's been troubling, super right-wing uh, politics demonstrations from time to time. And it's something, and, and the way Germans have these sort of more regional elections that create a lot of buzz and get a lot of news. And that's where frequently like these far right parties will get some traction in, in local governments. So anyway, I, I think what happened is that part of it has always been sort of xenophobic. Uh, I know that Turks were a particular target for a while. And then in recent years, when there's been a big influx of immigrants, particularly from Syria, I think much in the same way that Obama getting elected in the U.S. kind of lit a match uh, with far-right extremists, uh, that kind of happened in Germany. And because of, you know, 20th century history, you know, when, when fascism and the far-right rears its head in Germany, like everybody pays attention. Kevin, it's it's not very hard to draw a line where you hear about what's happening in this part of Europe with obviously the podcast talks about it, but it's, you know, we live here in the United States and the threads are the same. Yeah. And of course, the, the Syrian refugees kind of coming into Germany, Angela Merkel opened the borders to them. And it was in some ways... Toby calls it the spark. I sort of call it it's it's the excuse that the people who've been waiting for a spark use mm-hmm. to light the match to, you know, commit terrorist acts and a bunch of murders and attacks. It reminds me a little bit of talking points around immigration here in the United States where there might not be a crisis, but it's being talked about as a crisis all of a sudden, the caravans, the crisis. I think it's really interesting to hear that a story that we think is uniquely our own is actually global. I mean, is that what you got from the podcast? Yeah. I mean, there is a universality about hate uh, and about others, right? And some of that is lizard brain, but, you know, the way it manifests itself in modern society is like, yeah, you definitely think that, oh, yeah, this is just new happening here in the U.S. and it doesn't happen elsewhere. I mean, in my goodness, if there's one nation that ought to be concerned about the images of Nazism, it's well, you know which one, right? And so the fact that look, it, it could there could be a very similar story also in Belgium, right, or in Algeria or Egypt or whatever. The fact that it's Germany has a, a little more ring to it, right? And certainly, when you find out that the nation has actually done an awful lot since the war to try to prevent anything like that from happening again, that they put in guardrails all over to prevent extremists from you know, having any sort of influence, it ends up being, okay, well, people are going to start pushing up against those guardrails. And Mm. otherwise, am I interested in European politics? Not necessarily. Mm. But when it was put together like this and after January, I am really intrigued by what is happening there because there are so many parallels about what is happening here. There are an unbelievable number of parallels. Especially when you get to episode five. They headed straight for the Reichstag. Shouting things like Widerstand, resistance, and Wir sind das Volk, we are the people. They broke through the police barrier and ran up the main stairs. So, Laura, this is very different from podcasts we usually review. This is a New York Times podcast. It's very straight, 
journalism. I will just say right now that our host's narration, the direction of it and the editing of it was difficult. Uh, We hear her talking on tape and her uh, reading narration is extremely pause heavy, which I think makes the podcast a lot drier than it needed to be. So in March 2019, I called the defense ministry to get some hard numbers of how many far-right extremists had been identified in the military. The senior official I talked to told me that the number was small and falling. The most recent figure he had was four. That being said, um, this is really heavy material. I mean, is this something that you would ever have listened to if I didn't assign it to you for this podcast? No, it's not. So I popped this on while we were like driving across upstate New York and Ken was like, oh God, this is the stuff you guys listen to. This is pretty intense. Like, and I'm like, yeah, you know, it was definitely, it was heavy. And I did have a little bit of a hard time with the narration style. I felt like the first episode kind of came out strong, setting it up with, you know, Franco A, who he was, why this was an issue. And then I felt like we kind of meandered around and, and, you know, I think I'm used to listening to or the podcasts that I'm able to listen to, I think maybe and and digest, have a little more signposting throughout. And there was a lot of sort of open-ended conversations and they were all good, but it was definitely, it was heavy. And when we came back to episode five and kind of swung back to the start again, you know, it definitely came full circle. But for me in the middle, I, I definitely had a hard time following where this was going. And I felt like, did they drop the thread of where we started? But it was just told in a different sort of narrative style than somebody that might just be doing a podcast all the time. So, Toby, a few months ago, we covered a podcast from WBEZ Chicago about uh, white supremacists in the United States and their plan, which happened in like the 80s and 90s, that once uh, you know, their their movement was sort of quashed by sort of conventional means. They developed a plan that we are going to join the police forces. We are going to go into the military. We are going to gain power so we can infiltrate within. That is a huge theme in this podcast. And apparently it's something that's happening in Germany, which to me means it's happening probably everywhere. What do you think of the idea that that, that this podcast is trying to expose that? It seems pretty necessary. I, I think it's interesting. I feel like there's this kind of dynamic in the U.S. and and, I, and it seems like in Germany as well, where being in the military is is this patriotic thing that you do, and you know these far right people, I think, feel that they are like the super patriots, right? They're they're more patriotic than normal people, and when they get into the military in both countries, what they're swearing to uphold is the Constitution. And I and I think it kind of it comes out when they're talking to Franco A. And and I think it's certainly true in the U.S., which is that these people often sort of substitute their sense of what their country's about for the actual Constitution as mm-hmm. it's written and what it kind of stands for. So in fact, what they're doing is they're thinking, "I'm here to support or defend or whatever my conception of my country." And that's one thing in the U.S., in, in Germany, in the far right, it's another thing that has a lot to do with, you know, German identity and race and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's just, it's kind of an interesting dynamic, I think. It's something that, again, I think is another one of the parallels between 
the two countries. And it shows up here with these people who leave the military and, you know, join these far right groups that were partly involved in, in storming the Capitol on January 6th. So they interpret the Constitution the way some people interpret the Bible, that they f- cherry pick some of the ideas in order to um, underscore their, underscore yeah, their, you, their you hatred know. and beliefs. But yeah, Kevin, or, it's, or they even use it as like a shorthand for their yeah. beliefs. Like, I right. don't think, you know, it didn't sound to me like Franco A like was talking about this part of the German Constitution or that part of the German Constitution. It was just like, this is sort of a stand-in for German identity. Right. Mm-hmm. What was interesting to me is that we hear from Frank O.A., I mean, I think the podcast makes clear that some of these extremists were not going into the military so they could uphold their version of the Constitution. They're going into it to get training for the war they want to fight later. We yeah. actually hear Franco A., we see from his journals and stuff that he wrote as a kid that that was the plan. I'm going to go there. I'm going to infiltrate. I'm going to get trained. I'm going to become a general. I'm going to be in charge. And then I'm going to overthrow the government. Like, that's the plan. And and there's this idea, Laura, here in this podcast that's presented that to me is so unbelievably relevant when we see here what's happening, not just with the January 6th stuff, but with everyone's fears about sort of the next election and whether or not it will be certified, that, you know, they talk about how the Nazis were elected democratically and then they ended democracy. I just think that the plan of infiltration to me is like super frightening, whether it's the military, the police or the infiltration of democracy. Did you find yourself listening to all that stuff, especially toward the end of the podcast and feeling like a lot of chills? Yeah. You know, I think we've talked about there's like definitely a lot of parallels between the current situation in the U.S. and this. And, you know, obviously listening to podcasts we've listened to and things reported by Leah Satilli about the rise in the U.S. of far right extremists. And then I think hearing this with in the beginning, this sort of notion of the shadow army sort of being poo pooed that there was like four people in it. You know, like, oh, there's like four people. And then as the reporting continues and she then goes back to re-interview that same person from the beginning, you know, kind of that person then, uh, I can't remember if they were like a general or what their their role was, um, you know, acknowledges, yeah, it's it's much more than we knew. But oh, at the Office I, for the Protection of the Constitution place, yes. Yeah, but, you know, it was definitely, I think what's frightening to me in listening to this is just realizing that, this phenomenon that we are seeing is not just local to our country. It's happening around the world, and it's organized. And the fact that it's organized to the point that there's a shadow army infiltrating the army to get training for this day and that they are, you know, it's it's really kind of terrifying. And, um, it, you know, I think it definitely in this podcast was brought out in such a way that it really – illustrated just how terrifying that was. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely building my bunker. But, you know, I think that that sort of far right ideology that they bring to light is something that was was pretty terrifying because of the organization. Kevin, are you surprised to learn that um, the conspiracy stuff? I mean, there's the ideology and the xenophobia and the racism, Mm -hmm. which you can say on paper, okay, you're racist, you're xenophobic, you're a fascist, uh, you wish it were the time of the Nazis. Like these are like things that people feel that are terrible. But then there's also this thread of like 
deep conspiracy in the United States. It was Q, and, and Germany has its own version of that. What do you think this thread is all about, where there's this alternative story that is 100% fiction that gets latched onto like it's truth in order to fuel these flames? I, you know, I don't know what that's about. I mean, certainly two years ago, I would have laughed at the idea of, you know, people... Taking Q seriously? Yeah. Hey, you know, here's a guy. I mean, when the whole Pizzagate thing came out, everybody thought it was stupid. You know, like not uh, everybody. Well, I mean, after it was debunked, we kind of thought, well, we put that to bed. Of course, there's no sex slave thing going on in the basement of a pizza joint with no basement. And then if you told me, oh, well, you know, the next thing is going to be that people are going to believe that leading politicians are kidnapping children and drinking their blood to stay young. Uh oh well yeah I mean that's obviously crazy right that's not true um but yet the popularity of it that's the thing I don't get is why people's brains go to that because I don't I I just don't it's a unifying theory it makes sense of everything it is it is and I thought it was uniquely American and it's certainly not I think that you know with the rise of social media and ways for individuals to connect with other individuals. You know, a, that's how they end up like knitting together. Does it feel a like a mom. playbook? So to me, it feels like a, this whole podcast to me felt like a playbook. Like yeah. I'm listening to what's happening in Germany. I'm like, oh, there's a playbook out there yeah. but the idea that's of, being handed yeah. out to people who want to do terrorist acts, and they're just all doing the same thing. You know, how every religion has its own mythos about the end of the world, yeah, the apocalypse. It seems like every extremist movement has its own mythos about the fall of society. Yeah. And it's day X or it's the storm or whatever it is. The race war. The race war. And that's why we are uh, stocking up on weapons and ammunition and canned food. You know, it's like they're not collectors, right? They're not just in it to collect. They're, they're, they're collecting it because they are preparing for something. And just like the rapture, Right, you could like wait your whole life for the second coming, and if it doesn't come by the time you die, well, then it just didn't happen. But I gotta keep feeling like there are some people with these guns that are like, well, I'm waiting for the day X, but I'm not gonna wait till after I die. It's not like Jesus; it's the Nazi rapture. We're gonna go out. We're gonna do it. Yeah. Um, that they're gonna push it, and it's just it's very scary. You know what makes me incredibly sad? What? Is that there are some people listening to our discussion about this right now thinking we're talking about politics. The fact that this has been normalized and it's become politics to me is incredible. I mean, Toby, do you find yourself thinking that? Like I do. Like the fact that this is now seen as like normal political discourse, people are going to listen to this and think, oh, they're talking about politics. We're not. We're talking about terrorism. Right. And it's been turned into politics. But do you do you feel what I feel that's like a playbook that's been handed out and it's like if you want to overhaul your government, here's the playbook. Create a fake future fall of society. Get into the military. Get into the police. Become normalized. Form a political party that you can then defend with free speech when it's actually fascism. Right? It feels like a playbook. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think it goes back a long ways. I mean, the, the details change, but it's the idea that you infiltrate the army is... I mean, that's what happens in all these coups, you know, the part that conspiracy theory plays in the overthrow of governments. I mean, that goes way, way, way back. Um, so, yeah, it's always, you know, it's always I try to it's like this comes up with cults, too, right? Where there's like these certain things that all these cults have in common. And it's like, how did 
why do they all like do stuff about sleep deprivation? Yes. Or, you know, like where, where did, wh- why does everybody come up with that? Like, you know, is there a manual? Like that wouldn't occur to me unless I'd heard about it from somewhere else, you know? Why it's, is there always a dynamic second in command who's a woman who everybody yeah, trusts? It's, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's really strange. Anyway, yeah. And, and, the, and the fact, I mean, the whole politics thing. The fact that, like, as you were saying, that this can be interpreted as a political conversation is just freaking nuts. It's bananas. I feel as though more people think it's bananas than are willing to say that they think it's bananas because they fear their political repercussions for voicing it. Yes. Well, we saw that over and over again, even with the Bundy situation and with Waco, that the government is does not want to intervene because they don't want to turn it into a political, and then it becomes a political situation, right. normalizes it. And then, and then Amon Bundy, I think, is running for the governor of Idaho. Yeah. Yes, I saw sure, that. It's politics not? now, Laura. Uh, so Franco A. himself is in the podcast. Um, he has a very O.J. Simpson way of talking about <laughs> what it is that he did or did not do yeah. by saying, hypothetically, if I had stalked this politician and wanted to murder her hypothetically but would you say why you went just why if ever i went i never said that i went but i think people know that you were there because you took pictures and your phone was taken and yeah there were pictures on my on my phone but then this doesn't prove that i I was there in some in some way that's the situation so um so you're disputing that you were there i just don't talk about it what did you think of that entire interaction it was bizarre um yeah what was oj's book if i did kill her if i did it yeah. Um, you know, it was it was weird because I'm listening to it and I'm like, so either he thinks he's untouchable or he really thinks that he's smarter than the system by inserting the hypothetically. But either way, the fact that he wanted to talk to these reporters and share his side of the story hypothetically, I think is telling about his particular mindset and also sort of the mindset that you're dealing with with these, you know, shadow army people that have infiltrated. Go to the New York Times website so you can see the photographs they have of him. Just because there's one where he's kind of like in, down in his basement, just kind of rummaging around. And one where he's having a drink in a pub, kind of staring off into space like it's an album cover. Franco A. Franco A. Yeah, I mean, he really- Franco think- A. He's, he's certainly uh, drinking in the experience. Kevin, can I just ask you a couple production questions? Yeah, sure. One thing I found was really smart was they have a German source who used to be part of this movement who they interviewed during like a lunch break when work and they're driving yeah, right. in a yeah, car. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, she's asking him questions in German and then they are also translating the questions for us. They have an actor reading his answers. I thought that was a really clever way to do a, an interview in another language without us having to listen to like what he's saying right now is whatever. What do you think of this general production style of this podcast? It feels very transparent to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very classic way of dealing with a, you know, an interview uh, in a foreign language is to just dub in the next person. I, you know, one of the things that got me, I don't know if they did this on purpose. Um, Katrine kept mentioning like that she was doing things with these other producers, and it kind of reminded me of Caliphate, where it seemed like uh, they kind of let the reporter go off on her own and later regretted it. I don't know if they meant to like say that yes we have a chaperone here to make sure that this is this is all on the up and up. I think it 
It is quality reporting, though. I think like a reporter with one producer go off on their own, and that was the issue with Galifate. One very one producer who shaped it in a very yeah. unconventional way. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Day X? It's a podcast from the New York Times about extremism along the lines of Bundyville and Two Minutes Past Nine and uh, other podcasts you've listened to about right-wing extremism. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Day X? Yeah, so I'm going to give this a thumbs up, uh, even though this is something I normally would not have listened to. Uh, you know, this was well-reported, well-sourced. You know that they had all of the relevant people that they were able to get access to to tell this story. But it's it's definitely a little frightening. So if you are in a place where you don't necessarily want to think about, you know, far-right extremists... Um, globally organizing, I'd say skip this. If you want to stay abreast of what's happening in the rest of the world and how that's sort of running parallel to some of the things that are happening in our own country, this is a podcast that's going to give you a really good in-depth look at that. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Day X? I give it a thumbs up. I mean, it's it's definitely like a newspaper podcast, I think. I mean, it's it's really well reported, not a lot of frills. You know, it's smart. I I mean, this is, like I said, I started listening to it just because I thought it would be interesting before I knew we were going to review it. So it's it's up my alley. It's, as we've talked about a lot, it's interesting because it's specifically for Germany, but it's sort of universal for our world right now. Um, it's very well reported. Uh, I thought, like, some of the interviews were super interesting. Um, so, yeah, thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. Thumbs up. It was very informative, and then when they get around to describing this sort of riot at the Bundestag, it certainly reminded me a lot of January 6th. It was the same. It was essentially the same. It lasted for a few minutes. The same, yes. Someone describes democracy here as a train station, where some people get on and then they get off once they got where they need to go. Um, And that is very, very scary. There was some big hypotheticals uh, that we contemplated when we heard podcasts like Bundyville, uh, The Remnant, and even more recently Motive about extremism. And in a lot of ways, these things are no longer hypotheticals. Um, You know, there is real danger. And, you know, there are paths here for people who want to be bad actors and use the, uh, the conventions of democracy to upend democracy. So... These are cautionary tales, and so while it's not thoroughly enjoyable like alligator candy, uh, it's uh, very important to listen to. So a thumbs up. I'm giving this a thumbs up too. I do have a criticism that is like kind of uh, outside the box for me. So I do think, like you said, Kevin, there was some overcorrection here in the production of this podcast, right? But I actually do think this podcast could have done with a little bit of, uh, for lack of a better word, sexing up. Mm-hmm. This podcast could have had a bomb ass theme song where she said, I'm the host. This is Day X. Boom. Instead, the whole thing was full this of. Is sprockets. This it, is where we dance. No, no, but this, this whole podcast was full of quiet moments and quiet uh, pauses and long piano interludes and, you know, ad breaks that I know were empty, but it was like seven seconds of silence. And it just yeah. felt to me very quiet. And monotonous that had nothing to do with like the reporting or the writing or anything like 
It didn't do the thing that a podcast like this should do that is a truly terrifying podcast like Bundyville did where it was like, it's a lot of tape. You want to hear it. You want to hear this scene. You want to hear the crowd on the street. I don't know. I felt like the production was a little bit underwhelming considering the quality of reporting. Otherwise, the quality of the reporting is very, very strong. So yeah, I got to overall give Day X a thumbs up. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. week. A bar in Worcester, Massachusetts says it will accept Monopoly money for two hours this week. If you go to Ralph's Tavern on Wednesday, you can pay the cover charge with one of those salmon-colored $5 bills Mm. or pass around those blue tens to get hot dogs, non-alcoholic jello shots, and raffle tickets. Hot dogs? So you're there, Kevin? Hot dogs, How do you say hot dogs in Massachusetts? Hot dog. Yes. It's all part of a promotion for one of those locally customized Monopoly games. Ralph's is the city's oldest tavern, and they want to be included on the Worcester-centric board. So grab your top hat, hop in your thimble, and go directly to Ralph's. Just be sure when you leave that $50 tip, it's an actual greenback and not one of the purple ones. So panel, it would be great to pass around Monopoly money all the time, but why stop there? What innovation from your favorite board game would you like to see in real life? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, I have to say, when I was a kid playing Candyland, I was obsessed with the Candyland board. And this is like low-hanging fruit here. But I would like to see like a virtual reality, completely immersive Candyland experience for adults. Nice. Oh, that means strippers, right? Toby Ball, what about you? What board game would you like to see as part of your real life? I want to get child tax credits for those little uh, little pegs that you get in the game of life. <laughs> oh, yes. What about you, Kevin? Well, I was going to say in the game of life, I would like to be able to spin that thing and know immediately if I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Huh. You know what I would like? What? A conservatory. Oh. Yeah. A conservatory. <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker, that should sum it up for us. But before we end it, I know that you probably have a cat of the week this week. <laughs> So people, send me your cats. I've had so many dogs lately, but I, I couldn't I couldn't say no to this one. Uh, Casey Santana is nominated Rory, 
Rory recently turned 11, and they are celebrating. He's a very cute little. He kind of looks like your dogs, Kevin and Rebecca. Mm. He's kind of that same kind of dog. He's a little grump, though. But he has right to be grumpy because in the last year, Casey brought home a baby, four alpacas, bees, and they had chickens in the basement of the house for two months. Nice. And Rory, uh, I guess Rory's a girl, has taken it all in stride. We think she got a little sick of us all during the pandemic. And special mention to Miss Firecracker, the alpaca, who wants to stamp on Rory. Uh, Laura, you say they look like your dogs, as if our two dogs look alike. That seems very doggish to me. I'm just going to say it. Jesus. <laughs> I, I don't know. Dogs all look the same to me. Whichever one, yeah. they all look the same to it's me. Like how I mean, it's like white people all look the same to her. <laughs> It's it's like we had a we had a dog sitter, cat sitter at our house while we were gone, and they were like, uh, "Do you have three cats?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Oh, they all look the same. <laughs> all right, so Laura yeah. Bricker, if people want to submit their dogs to be Cat of the Week, of course they can also submit cats to or any kind of animal. Uh, you can send them in, of course, to crimewritersonagmail.com or in our Facebook group. But Laura, if people want to tweet them to you, how can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to find out the next podcast that you're listening to just for pleasure that could eventually become a Crime Writers on Review podcast, how can they find you on Twitter? If we're going to do 36 from the Vault, the Grateful Dead podcast on Crime Writers on, I'll be most surprised, but they can find me <laughs> at Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to tweet to you and wish you a happy belated birthday, how can they find you on Twitter? Hi, you can tweet to me at... <laughs> Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I strenuously encourage you to join our incredible community in the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Look at four extra podcasts, the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome cross-country traveling, uploading files from a rest stop in Indiana, Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine podcast is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Ogaloft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we keep our pop-o-matic bubble. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Okay. Alright, hit stop. Although I could say Day X could probably learn from strange arrivals yes, with their dry ass. That's oh I my said. god. So these it's like fifty percent guys- silence. Like what <laughs> the hell is that? It's a great lady, man. It's the the great lady Times. doesn't, doesn't like, roll like that. Step up, Jesus. <laughs> Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.